Hello, Degrassi fans, and welcome to the Degrassi Kid Podcast, where each week we break down the history and impact of our favorite teen TV show. I'm Jocelyn, and this week I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered what it's like to play a parent on Degrassi? You might come in for an episode or two, help your TV kids through their problems, and then you disappear for a while. On screen, your kids will frequently mention you and your reaction to the things that are happening in their lives. They'll share stories of how you grounded them for staying out too late, or how you wouldn't let them wear that revealing outfit to school, or how you were like totally bugging when they failed that math test. It was just by a little bit. (laughs) To the audience, you're with us all the time. Whenever our favorite characters mention their parents, we imagine you with your face, your style, your everything as you react to the teen issues that they bring home with them from school. And it feels like you have a really deep relationship with these teen characters that we love. But in real life, you show up for one day of filming, you have no idea what's going on in the show, and it's probably the first time you even met this kid. (laughs) So today I thought it would be really interesting if we sat down with one of those TV parents. I want to know, what's it like to be a part of Degrassi's history in such a unique way? How does their focus on teen issues impact the role you play as an adult? And what's it like to play a parent who talks to their teenager about sex? Today, we're sitting down with Pat Bevan, the actress who played Stephanie Kay and Arthur Kobolowski's mom on Degrassi Junior High. We're going to hear about her life as an actress, her life as a writer, and her life as one of our favorite Degrassi moms. But first, let's listen into this iconic moment when Stephanie's mom sells condoms to a young wheels in Degrassi Junior High. Can I help you? Uh, I'd like to buy these. Very well. I think you should read these. Every young person considering becoming sexually active should know about family planning and sexually transmitted disease. Uh, thanks. I just have to tell you, Pat, this is so freaking exciting. I've been following you forever. I've watched you on Degrassi. I have two of your books now. My goal is to collect all of them. And this has just been such an exciting time learning about you. And now I get to connect with you. This is so cool. It's so cool for me to be here. The reason that I want to chat with you today, Pat, is because you have written a book called The Working Actor, My Brilliant Unsuccessful Career. And in this book, you've talked a little bit about Degrassi. But before we get to that, I want to know what inspired you to write this book? Well, I guess it's like I explained on the back cover. You know, we hear about so many Mm -hmm. actors, celebrities. We know all their stories, the deep dives into their lives. And I think a lot of people think that's how it is for actors. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is for a very, very small percentage of actors. So I just wanted to open it up and let people know what real life is like for people who go into the business. I really like that. One of the takeaways that I have from this book is it's I think it's really a testament to defining success and happiness for yourself. That's one of the key messages that I related to, especially because, you know, when I grow up, when you grow up, you're handed a roadmap, right? Like you're supposed to graduate from high school. You're supposed to go to university, get a degree, get a job and a career. And I did all of those things by everyone else's definition of success. And I just wasn't happy doing it. And then uh, after COVID, I kind of had to face the question of, well, you know, I'm trapped in my house. What does happiness look like for me? I've been living my life for everyone else. And uh, that's when I just sat down and figured out what it meant for me. And now I get to do this every day. I wake up every day and do what I love. I celebrate Degrassi. And now I get to sit here and talk to Stephanie Kane, Arthur's mom from Degrassi. So that's the key messaging that I took away from the book. Well, that makes me really happy because that is something that I hoped people would get from it. And when I was trying to think of a name for the book and I 
had the tagline, my brilliant, unsuccessful career, mm-hmm. I worried about that, like putting a kind of negative word on the on the front of the book. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly how I, I felt because, you know, I never performed on the stage at Stratford or at the Shaw Festival. I'm not mm-hmm. like flying off to make films in Germany and Guatemala and things like that. So by industry standards, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is an unsuccessful career. But to me, it's brilliant because I got to follow my dream. And I've had so many amazing adventures on, you know, in all aspects of the business, in theater and film and television, voiceover work. So to me, it's brilliant. I absolutely love that. And later, I'm actually going to ask if you can read some of your book for us. But for now, we're going to kick off with some Degrassi questions because a lot of my listeners love Degrassi. And then we're going to tell them a little bit more about your book. The first question comes in from a fan named Mike in Alberta who wanted to know a little bit about the casting process. How did it come about that you landed a role on Degrassi Junior High? Gosh, it was so long ago. <laughs> I know, I right? Remember. <laughs> I did not have an agent at the time, so I didn't go through an agent. I remember I saw a little tiny piece in I think the newspaper about this new series that was starting and when you don't have an agent you have to keep your ear to the ground and see what's going on so I remember I got in touch with playing with time and sent my stuff and then I got called to come in and audition and I remember I auditioned for Linda Schuyler and I think (gasps) Sari wasn't in the audition as I remember it and they hadn't cast uh, the teacher roles yet. And they hadn't sort of set what the characters of the teachers were going to be like. So I did audition for the teacher uh, because I was a teacher. And I remember doing an improv of introducing myself to a class. And then I went home. Everyone was very lovely. And then I got a call, you know, asking if I'd be interested in being Stephanie and Arthur's mom. Oh, that is so cool. See, this is what I love is learning new little facts because I had no idea that you auditioned to be a teacher on this show. That's so cool. And before Degrassi Junior High, they had made a series called Kids of Degrassi Street. Were you familiar at all with that? I had seen it. Yes, I had. Oh, wow. I'm always curious about if people who are auditioning for these shows have the history of the background about it. So that's really, really cool. Yeah, I guess that's why when I saw the little bit in the paper that they were making a new series, I was familiar with Kids of Degrassi Street. So I thought, oh, that might be something to to get interested in. That is so cool. I'm going to give for our listeners a little insight to the episode that you first appeared on, which is Degrassi Junior High Season 1, Episode 7, titled Best Laid Plans. You start by playing a pharmacist who sells condoms to wheels. Then he shows up at your front door later to go on a date with your daughter, Stephanie. Meanwhile, Arthur sneaks a pornographic VHS tape into the house called Swamp Sex Robots. Do you have any standout (laughs) memories from filming this iconic episode? Well, I loved filming the parts in the pharmacy because that was kind of fun when Stephanie was getting all excited about my date, not because she was excited about my date, but because she hoped I'd be out of the house when her date picked her up. Um, But something very funny about that episode, that episode was aired somewhere else. And my nephew saw it, one of my nephews saw it in his grade seven life class, life studies class. And he didn't know, he doesn't know, you know, about, what I do. And he saw me on 
screen and he like stood up and he's like that's my aunt and the teacher said sit down and he said no no that's that's my aunt up there and she's like please sit down we're trying to watch this video and at the end he thought okay well they'll see you know the credits will roll at the end and he'll see my name yeah of course the credits rolled but my surname had nothing to do with his surname so I think he got into quite a lot of trouble for disturbing the class during that episode that is so funny. I would absolutely stand up and freak out and be like, that's my aunt. That's my aunt. That is so funny. And it, that's one of the standout episodes of Degrassi Junior High is this moment where Wheels goes and buys condoms and almost has sex with Stephanie K. It's one of the hugest moments. So I'm curious, you know, one of the scenes that stands out to me is Stephanie says to her mom, she says, mom, when's the first time you had sex? And we have that classic moment. Her face goes blank. She drops her food and she kind of freaks out. And the reason I'm curious about that kind of scene is because Degrassi is a show that is built on, you know, talking to teenagers and teaching them about these kind of life lessons. Was that something that was apparent when you were filming is that your role was to kind of be this educator for teenagehood? Well, that's how Mrs. K was sort of, <laughs> you know, in the show. But of course, when we filmed that first season mm -hmm. nobody had any idea of the phenomenon that Degrassi would become it was great to work on that set but nobody knew that this would go all over the world and mm -hmm. you know beyond somewhere for the rest of my natural life certainly <laughs> nobody knew the impact at that time that it would have yeah, that is so true. The next time you come back is uh, for an episode in season two, episode nine called Dog Days. Stephanie is battling with depression. Arthur gets a new puppy and their mom is considering marrying a new man. A lot is changing in the household at the K's house. Do you have any standout memories from filming that episode? You know what I remember about that episode is, and I'm not sure if they did this with every episode or what, but mm. I remember a meeting before we filmed that particular episode all the kids were sitting around. I, I guess we were in the playing with time office. I can't remember. All the kids who were involved were sitting around and me and Jerry, the guy I was supposed to go. I kept sending people. No, I can't see you. My kids need me. No, I can't see you. My kids need me. And we were sitting around and we read through the whole episode. And I remember the sort of focus of that whole episode changed because of feedback from the kids. I just remember they were so intent on getting everything right from the kids' perspective. And that episode started out, I think, to be the focus would be on Arthur and, you know, sneaking that little dog in and out and all of that. And it really switched to being on what Stephanie was going through. The writers went away, made changes to the script, and then we came back and filmed the new script. That is fascinating so yeah my little fangirl brain is just like soaking in all these new fun facts i'd never heard before that is so so cool and our next question actually comes in from evie Pacini. she has her own podcast called degrassi schools in and she's curious how long has it been since you've actually seen these episodes of degrassi that you appeared on i haven't seen them for a long long time <laughs> but it was strange just before christmas somebody that i work with in another arena said he was in the kitchen cooking and he heard this voice coming from the TV and he's like I know that voice and he went in and and it was one of the episodes of Degrassi that he just recognized me from, from my voice 
Oh my and God. so that was kind of interesting. But it's so cool that a whole new generation is discovering, you know, all those shows. That's that's kind of so fun. Yeah, especially with 2001, everybody got back into it with The Next Generation. And then now through streaming, it's on Amazon Prime. And now everybody's watching it for the very first time. There might be someone who's 19 who's watching the show for the very first time. Or there might be someone who's 50 who grew up with it as a teenager. And it just keeps finding that that new generation. Yes. When I when I filmed Degrassi, my daughter was sort of at that age. She was, I think she was 12 at that oh, time. Perfect age. And funny things used to happen. Like we'd be out having lunch at a restaurant and there'd be a table nearby of some little like youngish teenagers and they'd be giggling. And then one of them would be appointed, I guess, to approach the table and someone would come over and say like, excuse me, are you Stephanie Kay's mom? And my daughter would always say, no, she's my mom. <laughs> that is so cute. Did she ever watch Degrassi as a kid? Oh, yeah. She oh, yeah. She was a fan of the show. That is so cool. Did she, was it cool for her then to have her mom be on the show? I guess a lot of people, a lot of her friends who who didn't sort of know then, who have found out since then over the however many years it's been it's like oh I didn't know that was your mom on there that is so cool and what about the fact that Degrassi keeps coming back I mean we had the reboot with Degrassi Next Generation back in the day it's constantly coming out it's on streaming platforms what is your relationship like with Degrassi is it something that just kind of keeps popping up randomly and it's like oh yeah that's a thing that I did I've always been so proud of the series and I was very proud to be a part of it, just how they talked about issues and brought out issues. And I just felt it was always so much more real and relatable, like less glossy than some big American things you see on TV dealing yeah. with teenagers. So I always, I, I've always been a fan. Oh, I love that. And in 2022, actually, Linda Schuyler released kind of her own version of her own memoir uh, called The Mother of All Degrassi about oh, how yes. Degrassi was made. I, I seen that you posted on your Instagram. Did you get a chance to read it? Oh, certainly I read it. I put a thing into the library right away and got the first, <laughs> the first one that came into the library. Sure, I read it. Oh, my gosh. I'm curious. Was there any standout stories or moments in her book that really resonated with you as someone who's in the industry? It just seemed very real, and it was so cool to find out about all those little behind the behind the scenes things and how different things came about and everything meshed. That is so, so, yeah, so cool. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yes, I was looking forward to that coming up. I love that. I know I'm very happy with how many uh, people from Degrassi are releasing books because now I'm having this whole library start to expand <laughs> with people talking about their time on the show. So I thought it was very cool when I seen that you had posted her book on your uh, your Instagram story. Sierra has a question, a fan question for you. Now, this is a hypothetical kind of question related to the mother of all Degrassi, because in that book, we learned that Stephanie Kay was originally meant to have the pregnancy storyline instead of the character Spike. Now, just a fun question from Sierra. But if in that moment when Stephanie Kay says, Mom, what was it like the first time you had sex? If she said, because I'm pregnant, how do you think Miss Kay would have handled that situation? Mm, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think because of because of how Mrs. K was, I think she would have been very pragmatic about it and very, you know, um, well, we have to deal with this now. Mm -hmm. There might have been a little bit of, hmm, not I told you so, but hey, I'm a pharmacist. 
Yeah, you should know <laughs> this stuff. Happened, or, uh-oh, should I have had this talk with my kids a lot sooner? But I think she would have handled it very, you know, she would have just helped Stephanie K through it. I agree. I think they would have given us a nice story, maybe one that helped the adults a little bit more of how to facilitate that conversation with your teenager, mm. because it's, of course, teenagers know it's awkward, but parents also know it's awkward on that other side, too. Well, thanks to Sierra for that fun question. We're also curious, did you end up keeping anything from Degrassi? Like, do you still have your scripts or anything from your time on the show? I don't have any scripts. Mm -hmm. I don't have any pictures. You know, now we have pictures of everything and stills on video and film we do and everything. Mm -hmm. At that time, we didn't, you know, we didn't have our little cell phones and we didn't take all those pictures. The only thing I have is the calendar that came out, like, I think it was the first season, uh, they had a calendar, a Degrassi Junior High calendar. And one of the months, I forget what month, it was about Arthur's, it was the dog days episode. And it was me and Arthur with his little dog. Oh, I do my have gosh. That. Well, you know what I'm going to do? Because I also have all of the calendars. So I'm going to see if I can find the uh, the month that you appear. And that is so, so cool. I love that you have that little memento from Degrassi. We also had a question come in from Alex who wanted to know, how is working on Degrassi different than working on other sets and all the other productions that you were a part of? Oh, great question. One of the big things that was different was when you work on set on a TV series or film or whatever, mm -hmm. there are a lot of background people who are involved and you know you go through wardrobe you go through hair and makeup things like that for Degrassi it was not like that I wore all my own clothes you know I was asked to bring in three choices for different scenes that we were filming but then nobody did hair for us or makeup we just did what we did and appeared <laughs> we appeared so that was a big difference yeah and I also remember Kit Hood was directing at that time and you felt really in good hands with Kit as the director. I did anyway. I found he really knew what he wanted and he was willing to do as many takes as necessary to get what he wanted for an end product. And as he was working with kids, many of whom had little or no experience in front of the camera, he was very, very patient. And you don't always find that with directors. Oh, I love that. I know the, the environment of Degrassi just seems like such a welcoming, try what you can, try your best, and we'll guide you to that. So it's cool to see that that also exists through the actor side of the situation. One of the things I remember taking many takes for was when I was with my kids at the table discussing the condoms and sex and everything and there's one point where Stephanie K says like we don't really want to talk about this I'm not a little kid anymore she takes a sip of milk and she ends up with a milk mustache right yeah and so that's supposed to be sort of I'm not a little kid anymore but here I am looking like a little kid <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how many takes it took to get that but Kit was very patient about it and we just kept doing it and Nicole kept having to make these new <laughs> And if you're making a milk mustache on purpose, like some things, oh, you drink and you'll have a milk mustache. Well, we know if we take a drink of milk, we're not going to have a milk mustache. So to get that to happen <laughs> took a lot of work. But that Kit was very patient so through that. 
funny. I never even considered that. What that the practicality of trying to get that is like. That is so funny. Also, do you remember what it was like? The difference in time between the first episode and the second episode was a little bit. Duncan and Nicole had grown up a little bit and some time had passed. What was it like to come back and reunite for that second episode and see them again? That was great. And it it did feel like when I was filming those things, we it did feel like a family. So it was easy to just get back into that again. That is so cute. I'm always curious about that. That's adorable. I also wanted to segue a little bit. We're talking about the difference in working on other projects. And I want to talk a little bit about the working actor now, because one of the big differences about Degrassi is that they were a non-union production. And that's how you mention it in your book. And the question I kind of have is, when it comes to an idea of success for actors, one of the pillars is being a part of the union. And then you talk about how it benefited you to not be a part of the union. I'm wondering if we can talk about that. And if you could first set us up by us people who aren't actors telling us why is it so considered so successful to be a part of a union? Why is that kind of the dream? I think for a long time, you think if you're an actor, you think Being in the union is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. If I'm in the union, you know, I'll get all these new opportunities. And when I get all this work that will come that way, I'll be protected on sets and I'll have, you know, insurance and everything will be perfect. And I don't have to do all that work to get things and make sure I get paid and all of that. So I worked at that for years because, and you think, you know, if you're part of the union, it makes you, gives you some kind of respectability somehow, mm-hmm. like a you know, and people symbol. always say, well, of course you're in the union. And I felt bad about not being in the union. So I think sometimes on sets, I used to say, oh yes, of course. And there were a lot of hoops you have to jump through to get in the union. And they, they've changed over the years. But at that time, you had to have like three speaking parts of more than two lines on three different union productions and do all this other stuff. And you had to do it in a certain time frame, like six months, because if you got two of them and then the six months ran out, then those were gone and you had to start all over again. And that's that's when I mentioned Degrassi in the book, you know, if you speak like one line on a big American movie, like I'll take Manhattan, I do you say one line, you get a credit. So that counts. But you can do seasons of something wonderful like Degrassi and it doesn't didn't count at all. In the end, you just think, well, what is that about? It's just some external benchmark of success. And hey, maybe I don't need that. Yeah. Uh, And that's scary to think because that's the the way you're supposed to go. Just like you were saying, you know, graduate from high school, go to university, do this, do this, do this, and everything will be, you'll be a success. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, maybe I don't need to do that. And that changed everything for me. I know a friend and I were both cast in something and she was a union member and when you're a member of the union and you want to work in something that's not a union production the union has the right to deny you that chance I'm sure there are some rules or something but they're not very transparent about that it seems to be at their whim and they denied her the ability to work in this production and I thought whoa how many times would I've missed out on great working opportunities because I was in the union? And then I thought, well, I'll just go forward and make my own way. 
That's incredible. That is the story that resonated me with the most with all of this. And I'm curious if you would be open to reading an excerpt from your book. This is the part that stood out to me the most. Would you be open to reading us on page 73? You talk about kind of the decision process you made of deciding that the union wasn't something you were achieving. Okay. The joining process and paperwork were complicated, and it all seemed like a long shot for me at the time. But being an ACTRA member could open up opportunities, provide rights and protection, offer a safety net in terms of health care and pension benefits, and most of all, it seemed to confer validity, respectability. It announced you as a part of the established network and a contributor to its working order. So for years, union membership seemed like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It was something to strive for, an arduous challenge, especially trying to nab the kind of roles that qualified without an agent to get me into the audition room. And it was discouraging when speaking one line in a big American feature like I'll Take Manhattan resulted in a credit and working two seasons on an excellent show like Degrassi Junior High counted for nothing. In the early days, Degrassi had been contracted by CBC as an acquisition instead of a co-production with union requirements. It didn't seem to make sense, but I tried and tried. I wanted to be respectable, of course I did. I was chasing after an idea of something I was convinced I needed. I felt if I could just push through, do all the things I was supposed to do, and ride the tide of circumstances and things I couldn't control, my determination would pay off. When a good friend and I were both offered roles in a non-union production, she had to request permission to appear in the show as a guest artist because she was a union performer. For whatever reason, permission was denied. For me, that was a turning point. Looking back, I thought of all the amazing adventures I had had doing non-union work work I never even would have discovered if the union had had anything to say about it. Strange and wonderful days, weeks, months on film sets and alternative theater stages. And finally, the danger, the emptiness of hanging all my notions of success on some external benchmark became clear. Winning a union card was certainly an accepted step up as far as an acting career blueprint went. This was part of the culture I had absorbed. Now, suddenly, I understood how being so focused on that end could kind of hem you in and close you off from the chance to be lucky. I had to weigh the risks and rewards of union membership. I also thought hard about the idea that if no actors were willing to do non-union jobs, producers would have to hire and work under union contracts. Hmm. Did that mean that I was part of pulling down and harming the artistic community if I went indie? I struggled some with that. I realized how unquestioningly and obsessively I had been chasing the goal of union membership and how it kept making me feel like I was coming up short. It was time to figure out what success as an actor looked like for me. So I decided enough. I would go forward unprotected. I would be non-union. Hell, I would be the queen of non-union. <laughs> Oh, I love that. My all-time favorite part from your book. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> but also a dream come true for me to have someone from Degrassi read me their book about being on Degrassi. That was cool. 
I was also really uh, struck by this for a couple of reasons outside of my personal relate like relationship to this part, but also because the conversation around Union and Degrassi is such a big thing. Linda in her book talks about how you could have never made Degrassi Junior High with a union, especially because it wasn't catered to kids, right? It was a, a lot about adults who are working in the industry. So I was just really interested to see from the perspective of somebody who comes in as an adult also benefiting from the fact that Degrassi wasn't a union, even though sometimes they face plaque for that. So that was really interesting. The other thing that I liked about this is I did think that it was very Degrassi core in its messaging because a big part of Degrassi isn't what's right or wrong. It isn't about like, well, is it good to be a part of a union or is it bad to be part of a union? It's taking all the information you have and educating yourself to make the decision that's right for you. And that was the other thing that I had taken away from this book again is what does success and happiness look like for you even in something like this? What's so incredible is you've documented part of your life being on stage and being on screen. You've also written books like Caught in the Trap, which is about the mouse trap, one of uh, theater's longest running plays and your role in it. You have another book called Still Dancing about dance, arts and theater in Toronto. And one that I have on the way is called Fake Patient. Can you tell us what does it mean to be a fake patient? I love that title. (laughs) It talks a lot about... Well, it is about being a standardized patient, and that's a medical actor. Medical actors recreate medical scenarios for students, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, dietitians, all across the healthcare spectrum, so that they can be assessed in their skills and learn to deal one-on-one with their patients. Because you can learn a lot in school, But until you're sitting across from somebody, a real live person, it's just different. So they get to practice things that they learn and make the theoretical real. So it's a very fascinating field. And a lot of people have no idea about it. If they've even heard the word standardized patient, it's from the old Seinfeld series um, where (laughs) he gets a role as a standardized patient and he has to play a gonorrhea patient and the way they show it on the series it's very kind of taken to the extreme like he Mm. plays this gonorrhea patient and he wears a burgundy smoking jacket and he's smoking and talking about (laughs) that night of lost love and everything so that's all a lot of people know about standardized patients and the base the basis is that you're you're with doctors and they're talking to you, asking about your symptoms, trying to diagnose you, to make care plans for you. About, I would say, three quarters of the people who do the work are actors. And it's great for actors between jobs because you can pick up jobs when you're between engagements. Yeah. And people who come into the work who aren't actors get a crash course. (laughs) in playing a character because all of the same skills that you need as an actor are used you know learning a a role memorization creating a character taking direction reacting all of those things improvisation they're all used that is so neat at the end of one of those kind of projects do you ever get to give like feedback to the people that you're working with who are learning from you if it's For an exam, if the students are being assessed, like by the Medical Council of Canada or 
to go into practice, you don't give feedback. They just get marked by an examiner. But if it's during part of a, a lab or a lecture, a workshop, feedback is a very important part because really the only person who can tell what that communication was like mm -hmm. is the person sitting across from the person in the hot seat. So feedback is a very important part of that whole scenario. Have you ever had a situation where maybe you've worked with someone and then they, a few years later you're working with them again, or is it just kind of one and done and then you never see them again? You mean the, the learners? Yes. That's fascinating because sometimes you see people, I've been doing that work for about 20 years and sometimes you see someone and it's their first interaction ever with a standardized patient. So they're at the very beginning of their training in medical school. And then you might see them seven years later as a resident. And people have said to me, I remember you, you were my very, the very first patient I ever had. And I was like, how do you remember that? They say, I don't only remember that. I remember the role and I remember feedback that you gave me. Wow. And it's stuck with them. Well, I guess that would make sense because they're going, they're taking what they've learned from that moment and applying it to now real life. That is so, so cool. I'm also curious, playing that kind of role, has it ever, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, hmm, that I, me or one of my friends has this symptom, this symptom, this symptom? I think you have this. <laughs> I don't think that, but friends ask me all the time, you know, <laughs> I have this bad cough. It's a dry cough. Have you ever played a role on that? Do you think I should see the doctor? That is so funny. I love that. Well, Pat, Pat Bevan, which now I've learned, uh, those are all the questions I have for you. Do you have any current projects that are coming up? I still do a lot of, you know, I about to direct something, but it's secret project. So okay. I can't tell about it until it's all set. <gasps> and I do a lot of SP work. I do voice work and yeah, there's, there's so a lot cool. of work around if you just you know, scurry about and scrounge for it. So, cool. well, I'm very, and I excited. find that part of the fun, right? It's like yeah. being a detective, you know, seeing who's casting what and what you need to do to get in there. That is so cool. And that's reflected in a lot of your work. I mean, it can only be, it must be amazing to meet so many new people. You learn so many different techniques and all these different kinds of things. I really, really value that. Oh, and one of the other stories that I loved from kind of the duo of Caught in the Mousetrap and Working Actor I think I messaged you about this, was how sometimes people come into roles that have been played by other people before, and sometimes you want they want you to try to mimic what that other person did. But you just seem to be the kind of actor who wants to jump into absolutely anything that comes your way and puts your own twist in it, which is why you were such a great part of the caught in the trap, the mouse trap, which saw new actors come and go and come and go. So for anyone who's reading Working Actor, when you get to the part where she talks about the mouse trap, I highly recommend you also read about the mouse trap because that made it very, very cool. Awesome. Pat, those are all my questions for you. The last question I have for you is where can we find you on social media if we want to catch up with you? Well, I'm on Instagram. It's it's Pat Bevan. And Perfect. I'm on Facebook, just Pat Bevan. Perfect. And if you go on Amazon and type in Pat Bevan, you will find at least uh, four books written by Pat. So that's awesome. <laughs> well, Pat, that's everything. Thank you so much for this. This is like, this is like you're Stephanie K's mom. And now I'm talking to you and I get to read your books. This one, I even have it signed by you, which is makes it a special part of my collection. So, but well, that's everything. Jocelyn, you know, I admire so much what you do. Like, it's amazing the the knowledge that you have and it's so it's so crazy that you can just share that knowledge and fill people in on all kinds of things. I love following you on social media. It's just it's it's fantastic what you do. 
Thank you so much. It feels so cool. And I really love, you know, reading about that. The other 98%, we see what the big stars of Degrassi are doing. We know what Drake's doing. We know what Nina Dobrev's doing. I want to know what is Stephanie K's mom doing? What are those books that she's writing? What she's got going on? So it feels very, very cool to have this like niche special interest in this big show and get to share this kind of stuff with, with people around the world. Now I have my friend Evie is currently reading The Working Actor. Um, so we're going to be able to talk about that soon. So it's been really, really fun to make it a whole community. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jocelyn. Thank you so much to Pat Bevan for coming on the Degrassi Kid podcast. And thank you to you for supporting it on patreon.com slash Degrassi Kid. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Christine, Nancy, and Lindsay who joined our mail-out tier on Patreon this month. It's because of people like you that we get to make these Degrassi projects possible. Christine, Nancy, and Lindsay are just a few of the Degrassi fans who are getting Degrassi-themed Valentine's Day cards mailed to them this February. If you want to join at patreon.com slash Degrassi Kid, you can get packages mailed from me to you. A big amount of love also goes to Amber, Nicholas, Sarah J, and my best friend, Stevie Jarawa, who are all on the Degrassi Student Council team on Patreon. And to our faithful subscribers, Amy, Alana, Annie Clark, Brian, Becca, Brittany, Chantel, Chrissy, Degrassi CSI, Daniela, Dave, Evie, Ethan, Emily, Eugene, Hannah, Isabel, Jasper, J, Joe, Joey, Jolene, Jackie, Crystal, Cat, Catherine, Courtney, Kristen, Kylia, Lizzie Games, Mark, Megan, Mackenzie, Maddie, Mike, Mina, Molly, Rachel, Rebecca, Randy, Racine, Shannon, Shane, Stephanie, Sierra, Sunita, and Nixon from the Degrassi Generations Facebook page. Thanks to you, we get to dive even deeper into the history and impact of Degrassi. Love ya! <laughs>